0: Hiya, and welcome to another episode of The Jewel Case with me, John Darcy. And you might be listening on Lisburn's 98 FM or you could be listening on Bangor FM or FM 105 in Downpatrick. Or, another option is maybe you're listening online after the fact at thejewelcase.johndarcy.com. Maybe you've subscribed on iTunes. Thank you to everyone who has subscribed on iTunes so far And give us a review That's a total lie, I don't think I've had any reviews I'm currently number 2015th popular uh, arts and culture podcast on iTunes So let's break into the top 1500 over the next couple of weeks guys Today we have a very special guest We are in the MAC the Metropolitan Arts Centre in Belfast, one of Northern Ireland's uh, leading galleries and curatorial prospects, and with me right now is one of the team at the MAC currently, but he is about to leave, and I think this is sort of like a, this is a bit of a swan song um, (laughs) podcast, uh, but also like, you know, great chance to catch up with an old friend, it's Owen Dara, curator at the MAC. Owen, how are you? Hey John, I'm really well, thanks. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for inviting me into your space today. (laughs) Anytime. Any time at all. So, Owen, oh, big big changes for you at the
1: minute. Uh, yeah, yes. Um, I'm I'm going to be moving on soon from from the Mac and and from Belfast actually to take up a new uh, a new job over in Scotland in Dundee at DCA. Oh, very. Um, so, in quite a quite a strange place at the minute, where I've still got lots to do in Belfast, but thinking towards a pretty near future in Scotland. And what is your new role going to be? I'm going to be head of exhibitions for the galleries over
0: in Dante Contemporary Arts. Oh wow! Yeah, head of exhibitions—going to be pretty exciting. And, uh, and and you're quite a young up and comer. You haven't even hit thirty yet, Owen, and now you're <laughs> head of exhibitions. <laughs> uh, almost, almost thirty. <laughs> well, well you, so far, where have you been based? Let's give people sort sort of, sort of the background story. Your 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 background's in art, and you've you've got into. Being a curator, how, how does that happen? Um, in in no straightforward way, I suppose.
1: I, uh, I I'm like born and bred in Belfast, but I studied for my undergrad over in the University of Edinburgh and studied art history and English lit, and kind of thought at one stage there that I was maybe going to think about working in museums or galleries, but wasn't quite sure, and I. After graduating, stayed in Edinburgh until I could no longer afford to live in that city, um, volunteering and doing kind of unpaid internships and the usual kind of arts cliche startup jobs. And I came home, back to Belfast, really, to get involved with Catalyst Arts, which is the incredible artist-led organization here in Northern Ireland, just uh, around the other side of town on College Court. And they operate uh, in this really interesting way where... The organisation exists as, or uh, is ran, run, ran, run, run by a, a voluntary team of directors who commit two years of their lives to running the gallery, and that means everything from um, curating exhibitions and staging performances, gigs, and. Public programs to writing the funding applications to support the gallery to cleaning the toilets and serving the beer um, on gallery launch nights, and in many ways, Catalyst is. A, I mean, it's a bit of like an ad hoc mm. curatorial training program. Yeah. Um, where you're you're thrown in
0: um, at the deepest part of the deep end. But um, an amazing opportunity for people coming out of college or maybe wanting to get into curating, and you nearly see it. It's it is like a rite of passage, I think, for a lot of people in the Northern Ar- Northern Irish arts scene. It is definitely, and, and like further afield as well. Um, I, I we like kind of joke
1: and say that nearly all of the nearly uh, nearly all of the established galleries and arts institutions in Northern Ireland are kind of happily infected with Catalyst in some way, the curatorial teams and visual art teams across um, this whole region, I think all at least have some Catalyst ex-director in the mix somewhere in their history, so it's a real um, kind of bedrock of of
0: contemporary art in Belfast. It's actually the first place I think I saw you when you had returned to Belfast, because Full disclosure, everybody. I've known Owen since he was but a lad, a, t- a teenager, a-, a bigger boy than me. But we went to the same <laughs> school, actually, in Belfast. Yep. And uh, and so then you, I guess you went away to university, didn't see you a few years, and then the next time I saw you, you were serving wine, indeed, at a c- catalyst exhibition. Yeah, at a catalyst or a party, perhaps. It could have been a party. Yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Well, actually, you know, that's that's me you think because Owen. I don't want to. Don't want to make this too much. This is your life, but something I really associate you, with you. And I see so you're about to really cringe. Um, I wonder what you're going to say. Um, piece of music I really associate with you, and this is tied is to a musical you performed in. Oh, John Darcy. In school. Oh, you weren't expecting oh, this. Oh, no,
1: there's no need for this. <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh, Christ. <laughs> I mean, it's this a is fun. a brilliant song. This is a totally brilliant song. <laughs> Some Enchanted Evening from the musical South, South Specific. <laughs> As my <laughs> grandma called it. Are we going to the opera house to see South Pacific? <laughs> and you would you would the lead? Oh god, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. I was in a weird way the
1: only I was the only boy in in my <laughs> year in school that could hold a note, and I couldn't even hold it that well, but I could. So therefore, I was trotted out at every possible opportunity to
0: yeah. to sing or or something. Uh, yeah. Thanks for that. Um, why didn't why didn't you keep on the music? What what put you down the art route? Um.
1: Actually, do you know, uh, the reason I stopped music is because of music theory, really. Oh, right. In, a, in kind of a boring way, I, I kind of, I, I, um, I in school and stuff, did my, did, did my grades up to grade five using my voice, and then to progress any further, you have to do basically all mm-hmm. the maths and mathematics and calculating that comes with music theory, and I cannot do that. I'm um I'm a words man, not a numbers, and that kind of um
0: put a stop to it at least. And at the same time, I was getting more, much more into visual art. So we'll go back to Catalyst. So you you you'd clocked in your two years. Yes. There. Well, i i I was actually um coming towards the end of my directorship
1: whenever as the Mac was being built, mm-hmm. and um whenever. The Mac was being built. That's actually whenever I first started working here as part of the curatorial team. So, um, came on board just before just before we opened to see the to see the opening program in the galleries launch, um, and was working then as as assistant curator and have now been working as um, curator for for a while. Um, in total, for five years now in the building. And so, is that the Mac's open for five years now? The Mac the Mac will be open for five years next month, which is crazy and. Um, thinking back over the, the things that have gone on in this building over the past five years in the galleries as well as in the theatres and performance spaces, it's kind of
0: staggering to take it all in. Yeah, like maybe could you sort of sum up what the goal has been from the Mac in terms of like what sort of work to put on Because and, and and maybe sort of talk a bit wider about what a curator actually does, like a gallery creator and specifically at the Mac.
1: Sure, um, I mean the Mac is a real first for Belfast and Northern Ireland in in terms of the the scale and ambition of the institution there's never been an organization here that in terms of an artistic program has such um has has such ambition for live events and music and theater as well as mm-hmm. for visual art and kind of contemporary practice in that way you very often find with um art centers that they lean um, towards one or the other. You know, it's either a big theatre space with a small gallery attached or a big gallery institution with a with a small piece of live event programming. Whereas in the Mac, there's this wonderful kind of 50-50 balance between the the different art forms or or a kind of a fair balance between the different art forms. And as a curator in, in general, I mean as a curator to define it broadly, or to even go back to the, the the etymology of the word, kind of means to care for, and in this case, to care for uh, art. Maybe more historically, it's it's been a curator's role has been to care for existing artworks, but but over the past few decades, it's more and more. Um, I see it more and more as to care for and support and champion artists, and to help artists create new work and push their practice to the kind of next level. And that's that's hopefully what we do in the galleries at the MAC. Um, while sometimes we'll stage exhibitions of existing artworks from um, very well-known artists, the other half of what we do is really focused on making big commitments to artists to make new work, to make newly commissioned work in response to the city of Belfast or the idea of Belfast now in 2017, or... Um, specifically to have a look at our gallery spaces, to have a look at the architecture of the spaces and see how their work might actually respond to those very uh, particular
0: and bespoke environments. Well, the Mac opened with the sort of retrospective of Andy Warhol's work, and recently it's had uh, David Hockney's work as well, sort of big names. Um, But I think the one I most associate with you is the Felix show, in terms of you know a big name artist that you've managed to curate some of their work within this space and make it specific for Belfast too yeah um
1: the Felix Gonzalez Torres project is without a doubt the largest or the most significant um, project for me in in my time here uh, it's something to be honest it's it's an exhibition that it's an exhibition or a, the idea of an exhibition that I've had in my head since I was in university um Felix's work is, uh, and and that practice that was kind of carved out in the States in the 80s and 90s is is part of the reason that I'm a curator, I think. That was one of the, whenever I discovered that work in university, it, it made, it kind of flipped everything for me and made me think about how artworks occupy space and the importance of those decisions being made around how to position artworks, display artworks, talk about them and how they can also unfold differently in different locations in different contexts and the actually in a, in a really lovely way, um, whenever I first interviewed for the job here part of the interview process was to pitch a hypothetical project that you would like to see happen in the Mac once it's open and I pitched a, a Gonzalez Torres exhibition so but I, but I pitched it in a really blue sky thinking way I, I, and I genuinely thought I'd maybe get on to do that exhibition probably in another five years. Um, but the reason that I have I was able to work on that already and stage that here was, uh, I mean, pretty much completely down to the trust and support of Hugh Mulholland, who's the senior curator here in the MAC. Who Shout out to Hugh. Yeah, huge shout out to Hugh. Uh, <laughs> and uh, Hugh trusting me enough mm-hmm. as a young curator, um to take on what was a mammoth kind of project um was pretty remarkable is still pretty remarkable and and the exhibition itself or the project itself was i mean it was a, it was a few years in the making it it took a couple of years of planning um lots of conversations with different museums galleries owners um, lenders Felix González-Torres, sorry I should say, um, sadly passed away at a young age in the 90s. Um, so that kind of throws up a whole other set of challenges in working with an artist's work that's still hugely contemporary and exciting, but the artist is no longer with us and you're operating and collaborating with a foundation that now represent his work and champion and protect the kind of legacy of his work. Um, but also you're trying to see how you can take these artworks and ideas that were made at such a really kind of potent time socially and politically in America in the 80s and 90s and see how they fit into the 21st century in somewhere like Belfast where arguably Felix would, you know, Felix never knew that his works were ever going to travel this far or were going to speak to audiences here or, or change very slightly um, down to some of the decisions that I was able to make as a curator in staging them.
0: Well, that work particularly dealt with a lot of issues in the gay community and HIV and the AIDS. And how do you think the exhibition did speak to audiences in Northern Ireland? I think the the
1: real genius of Felix's work is, um, how, is in how generous it is and how universal it can be. So whilst he um, absolutely points towards And the the work was made in the you know at at the height of the AIDS crisis in the states, and a lot of the work is deeply personal about um, his friends and loved ones, and in particular his his lover Ross, who passed away um, a few years before he did um, of uh, of AIDS related complications, and. There's all of that specificity and all of that really hugely emotional and and powerful material in the work, but, um, but at the same time, all of the artworks kind of take the most banal or unremarkable materials and objects and transform, and Felix kind of transforms them with the kind of lightest touch into these gorgeous, big, expansive ideas that talk about love and loss and life and death and togetherness and belonging and these universal um, truths and these universal uh, concepts and ideas that we can all find a way into no matter uh, who we are, no matter
0: what we believe, no matter our age, our sexuality, our gender, anything. One of the pieces in that exhibition, and was, was there a name for the exhibition? It was called This Place. This Place. And I think it was in the Tall Gallery, was it? You you were given headphones and you hear Mazzy stars fade into you. And maybe you can describe for listeners sort of what they're seeing then when when they come into that space.
1: The piece is called Untitled Arena um, and Felix first made it in 1993. And the work itself is a a garland of light strings uh, or a garland of light bulbs that are installed in the ceiling of a space in a rough kind of square shape that zone off an area of light in the gallery and then whenever Felix first made the work he he placed two Walkmans close to the kind of area of light that these lights threw on the ground and playing on the two Walkmans um, was waltz music and within that positioning of that technology beside the sculpture um, there kind of lies a Uh, a quiet invitation for two people to dance under the light thrown by the work. And with so many of Felix's works, there's been kind of uh, slight changes and updates to them over the years. And so in 1993, it would have been um, a cassette Walkman that was used for this. And then the last time that work was realised before it came to Belfast, it was um, an MP3 player playing uh, waltz music and so whenever we whenever we were given permission to realise the work we kind of uh, upgraded the technology again to use wireless headphones so it was even easier for people to take and, and wander and dance with but also there's I spoke about Felix's kind of generosity in making these artworks he always leaves certain decisions up to curators and galleries so he never specified the type of waltz music or the type of music um, for people to dance to, so I was actually given the opportunity to select um, a song to to accompany the work, and chose this this piece, which is one of my favourite Mazzy Star songs, uh, written in 1993, in the year that Felix made that work. And I mean, quite apart from it being a sort of three-four, dreamy waltz-type song, the um, the lyrics in it are particularly evocative and. I think tie in wonderfully well with that piece in the gallery. comes on slowly.
0: With that sort of work when when you're given sort of headphones, um, or there's that musical or, or s- oral component it, it, things get very cinematic for me as, as a, as a viewer slash listener um, so when, when I put them on I was actually uh, our, our mutual friend Richard Davis uh, also known as Heliopause and if you want to hear my chat with Rich uh, he's a songwriter and performer based in Northern Ireland, also a digital artist. Uh, check out the Jewel Archive, but he was in the gallery at the same time and we both had the headphones on and had this sort of like knowing look of this is kind of amazing because now we're to- totally transported and you can close your eyes or you can open and just sort of stare at the ceiling and you nearly find yourself rotating without realising because you're sort of in that spiral and you feel like you're in a movie from the 90s. Did you not take his hand and have a dance? I didn't, know because I didn't want to make it about me. (laughs) (laughs) You're so good. Yeah. I I wanted to leave that for other audience members, you know. I don't want to sort of derail that into a a different chat, but a lot of people, you know, enter the gallery and um, don't really know what to do. And I'm sure there's some people listening who, you know, hear the, oh, you're sort of invited to to take a waltz, but, "Well, well, I wouldn't do that, or I wouldn't have known to do that. Um, and a lot of people feel sort of intimidated um, by the gallery or they feel like they don't understand art and I'm sure that's something you have to, to deal with as a curator in a public institution that deals with art and tries to promote outreach and bring people into the gallery do you have any any thoughts about that?
1: Yeah um, as a I feel really, really strongly about that. Actually, um, as you mentioned, as a curator or when working in a public gallery or in an institution that's using and supported with public funds, we have a huge responsibility to make all of the artistic programming accessible to as many people as possible. And those ideas and those conversations around access, you know, are are everywhere at the minute. And can become very boring and very repetitive very quickly. But I actually think to to take it down to brass tacks, I personally believe um, as an individual person, not as a curator, not as a representative of an organisation, that art is for everyone and art can can change people for the better and public galleries and... um, public performance spaces and cultural venues have, that's the most important um, thing that that, 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 that they should be working towards, is trying to make people realise that. And I mean, uh, different places do it in different ways and there's so many ways in which you can kind of offer different ways in to what can be quite challenging or complex or layered um, artistic ideas and and projects, especially with contemporary art now, as it's so varied and and infinite in its scope in terms of what can and can't be art, and all of those conversations. I mean, here at the Mac, we we work a lot, um, or we, and we think a lot about those ideas. And I think probably the way we do it most is is through conversations, is through actual human conversations. Whenever we're staging work in the galleries we don't really go for the walls and walls of interpretive text. And we also don't go for the pamphlets and pages and books full of explanatory material that you know that can be commonplace elsewhere. Um, we, with our wall texts and with our labels and all of that kind of contextual information, we kind of strip that back, um, not to be inaccessible, but more to give people Give people to kind of open the door for people, yeah. um, but actually to ask more of audiences to step through. And then the kind of the, the other people that, that help lead people through are, um, are our staff in the galleries, and in particular, are, uh, our volunteers in the building who are um, brilliantly called Mactivists. <laughs> yes, love it. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't responsible for that gem. I can't take credit. But um, we, we do a lot of work. Um, with with all of our staff in the building in advance of exhibitions opening, where we do training and talks and meet the artists events and put together, we do put together really exhaustive notes and materials so that anyone working in the galleries has you know a kind of huge wealth of stuff to fall back on when people start to ask questions or want to know more information. They're the catalyst between the artworks and the audiences. We don't want to just passively have people consuming walls of text and then moving around the galleries having been told what to think or having meaning already been delivered to them. We want a conversation, we want a dialogue. Um, There's a great statistic that I always roll out. Apparently people or or gallery goers or or, uh, museum visitors in general spend around about 10 seconds uh, looking at an object or an artwork but of those 10 seconds, 6 to 7 seconds is spent reading the label or reading the panel beside it, actually only giving a fraction of time to look to actually looking and considering the object or or the artwork, and so in some ways we you know are trying to uh, strike a different balance where people are looking at the artworks and making their own um, opinions and forming their own meaning before then seeking out information which is there for them to take, but. They're not being given it before they see the art.
0: It's a it's a tricky dynamic to get right because uh, I guess the first question is, oh, "What's that about?" In this artistic climate that we're in, it's not about technique always. It's about conceptual ideas, or you know, and there's intention and reception issues going on as well of what what the artist wants to achieve and potentially that goes over the head of the audience. But what's that about? I guess is the first question. And it's kind of, a, it's a tricky question to answer because you, you it's not a puzzle to solve. It's not like the a, a piece of art is always a symbol for some hidden meaning because that's a trope that we sort of carry out now, especially on TV and film, that, you know, uh, modern art is always like something to do with the Turner Prize and has to be like this puzzle. Oh, it actually means this deep thing about someone's psyche,
1: I think uh, I I think we're past I think we're past the stage in, in the uh, history of art where artworks are supposed to provide answers. I think the best artworks now, being made now, and the best artists working now are those that are asking difficult questions and are making artworks that are posing more questions than they're giving answers.
0: One of pr- one of the projects that you've been a part of, and this is totally outside of the Mac. Um, has been household Belfast, and that was all about sort of engaging a local community and people who lived around the Ormo Road in Belfast with contemporary art, because a lot of artists live around there. A lot of, like a, there's a massive postgraduate community, and there's a lot of you know freelance artists just living around those streets that come off the Ormo. Um, so maybe we could talk a bit about household, because I mean this is but one of my big fascinations of the last couple of years in Northern Irish art, art arts and culture is. That it was just such a bright flame and then there was these two intensive you know, years where there was the actual physical festival and I was like then oh where did it go? So maybe you could talk us through the <laughs> household festival but also the household collective and the wider um, scene of that because you still do carry out you know, workshops and talks and seminars and things like that as well. Right? Yeah we
1: do, we're all, we're all um, in some ways working cl- more closely than ever. Household started with five friends and I mean it's still five friends but myself uh, Kim McAleese Sheila Branagh-Cashel Kira Hickey and Alyssa Kleist and we were all living um, on the Orma Road at a certain time uh, which is actually now five years ago or so and um, as you said so many so, so many of the the artistic community lived there and there was no and there kind of continues to be no formal venue outside of the city centre for the presentation of artworks there or, or to kind of try stuff out in any way, shape or form. And oh, but then you turned your house
0: into one of these places. You turned your yeah. house into a gallery briefly.
1: <laughs> yeah, Kim and I ran a gallery from our house for a couple of years. Um, as uh, just before household, the festival, the first festival happened. And was that sort of part of a germ of that household idea, or it was? Yeah. Um. I mean, previous previous to Kim and I starting a gallery in our house, for example, Kira Hickey had had worked on uh, the Delawab. Project which transformed this house over in the Lisbon Road into this incredible venue for all sorts of goings on over the past over over a period of a few years and um, and yes as you said Kim and I had moved in together and were uh, were, we're starting to program and they invite artists to respond to one of the spaces in the house and eventually kind of converted the master bedroom in the house into a gallery space that that we ran for a couple of years but household was. Household was really just galvanizing all of the artists and creative minds that were already at work in that area to, one summer over the course of a weekend, make all of that activity visible and do so within domestic spaces and public spaces and kind of reclaiming parts of public space in that part of town in the, in you know, the alleyways and in the park and in the library and the bowling club. Um, to to show off so much of the kind of talent that 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 exists in the city and, and, and that in that at that moment existed in that particular part of the city. So it became that uh that festival, if you like, over the weekend that we ran, you know, we organized and and trusted basically everyone to 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 deliver on, and they did so in spades that we then did it again the following summer with a bit more support from from some funders here in Northern Ireland, and the real magic of those two weekends was was kind of contained in how organic they were, and how ad hoc they were, in many ways how unofficial
0: uh, <laughs> they were. Yes, because it wasn't like a festival where you actually you know booked everything and and curated it in that way. Like you didn't call on artists to do it and they sort of organically grew and a call was put out. But it was all under the umbrella of households. It
1: was. And and you know um each both festivals, um the first and second, even though we had much more much more planning and a bit more support within into the second, by the time we kicked things off on that Friday night of a program that was running pretty much 24 hours right through to the Sunday it felt, it kind of felt like we let it go. And then everyone, you know, by the second year, about a hundred odd artists and 60 odd venues or, or sites and houses and locations picked it up and carried it on. And after that second, after the second festival, we, in in a, I mean, in a lovely way, in some ways, we, we, we were under quite a bit of pressure quite quickly to kind of to claim it as a very formal thing and to have it um, start to formalize as an official festival that would slot into the cultural calendar and be supported by X and Y funders and would, you know, da 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 da, da. And we we made a decision at the time, uh, I mean, quite apart from anything, all five of us were working full-time in other jobs as well. So this was, a, you know, it was, it was always a labor of love in that way. And we didn't want to allow it to become um a standardized thing in any way and we didn't want to allow it to um we didn't want any of that real spark and that real genuine magic that existed with it happening so um so organically the first two years we didn't want to kind of put that into a formula or start to have to like roll that out at a particular time of a calendar year because you know funders expected us to or wanted us to and so we made a decision at the time not to run it the third year but at that time we did whenever we kind of announced that if you like um we did say if anyone wanted to Take up the mantle that we would be happy to start conversations with people in the area about you know other people taking on that format, but what? But I mean, quite apart from the fact that no major conversations arose from that invitation, we we have continued to use the household uh, the idea of household, um, which at, at the core of all at the core of it at the core of what we were doing was just trying to get people in the city to um, to kind of renegotiate the ways in which they look at and interact with art in city spaces and in private spaces and public spaces. And so since then, we've continued to work as a kind of collaborative curatorial collective (laughs) um, to pursue um, more research and and other projects playing around with those ideas.
0: And what do you think is the significance of that look at you know site specific art art in public space how we use public spaces why is that important in belfast
1: i think it's really important in belfast as uh, as the city is starting to shift probably quicker than it has done in the past few decades towards um towards a, a kind of urban landscape that's a little less fractured um and in other ways just as fractured as it al- as it has always been it's such a unique City to be working in, um, whether it, whether you're working in in private spaces or public spaces, and the idea of artworks occupying the city is is it, I feel like it's an even more interesting thing to think about in in a in a peculiar place like Belfast than it is in other I don't know more straightforward for want of a better word. Um, okay urban spaces. <laughs> yeah. And so at the moment, you know for the past year or so, for example, we've been working with the city council to to try and um, try and kind of destabilize a bit what those big governmental bodies think of as public art, mm-hmm. um, even in a simple way, trying to make them think uh, more about the possibilities of art in public. Which you know, for all of us in the art community here, or or things like that, are are well aware and um, know the virtues of. But but at a, at a kind of broader level, how people start to think and might rethink how art can activate the city and change the city and yes, um, play around with
0: the city. And I feel like that's sort of, you know, a necessity now as well because the classical. Public art piece that is a large sculpture designed by one person and manufactured by a, a construction company or whatever. Um, it gets complaints, yeah, and, um, no, and, and people say put the money in the hospitals. That's not contributing, but but there's so many other mediums or media <laughs> of art forms and ways to engage actual local communities with artworks and you know actually have them perform, for example. Um, that is very much tied to social well-being
1: yeah and I mean uh, I I don't think anyone in any city in the UK or Ireland, at least needs another sculpture on a roundabout or needs another bronze whoa 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 are you talking about the Westicles <laughs> I mean the Westicles is case in point uh, <laughs> the clink on the link <laughs> 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 I've never heard the clink on the link that's amazing there's so many names for it isn't there
0: <laughs> but, we're but, talking about the balls and the Falls in case you didn't recognise either the Eagles or the clink on the link which is actually called Rise I, I was, just, say. I was actually Rise. just
1: about to say my mind completely blanked. I couldn't even give
0: you the real yeah. name of that artwork and it's, it's, it's tessellated triangles creating a sphere and it's very inspiring giving yeah. up the m one into time <laughs> <laughs> well I, I, I believe we believe in household and I think
1: many most artists working in the public realm now um, would would argue that, that 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 those type of permanent, everlasting uh, artworks and sculptures they're 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 no longer they're no longer needed. We don't need any more. There's too many of them. Mm. Um, and as you say, there are so many other ways of working with public space that can produce just as transformative an experience as any static work of art. Um, well, but in does- a way you're
0: talking about sort of ephemeral experience in that way and you know events that happen like the household festival as opposed to a, a static object or a thing that at some stage grows rust or is going to get knocked down anyway so in a political sense you're nearly talking about like objects and materialism versus I don't know community and is that the root of that do you think?
1: Um, I think,
0: or maybe I might dig in digging too deep in. <laughs> no, no, I, 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 don't disagree with what you're saying at all, actually. But public
1: art and public art commissioning, and public art commissioning bodies that you know that that are the purse string holders and uh, the people with the power to execute those projects, I think they need to understand more and be more open um, to the ways in which artists now are making artworks, mm. and uh understand that an artwork no longer has to be a static object or a physical object it might be completely invisible or it might be there for a day it might be there for two years it might be there forever but that there's all of these different ways of exploring um options for 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 creating commissioning and celebrating artists working in cities and the type of artworks that they might might make for citizens of any given place.
0: It's sort of funny thinking of that in terms of the the stakeholders of who you know decides what a city's going to look like or what art it's going to have, um, even down to the architectural ideas. But those people making those decisions, if they do or don't understand what art is or what it can be, or their conception of art and. You know, we, we talk about our politicians and our ministers and what they maybe understand about culture if they're the culture minister or what they conceive as being arts and culture. Um, and I get there's, there's lots of questions coming up about what we're where we're going to be at politically soon but I feel that like you're t- saying about the Mac bringing people into galleries and providing that access and you know people from a young age, getting a better literacy about what art is and that art isn't just maybe drawing, that it's sort of wider things about just making us question about what the world is in society. Um, that if that education happens at an early age, maybe hopefully and in a generation's time, <laughs> we'll have better decision makers at the top of the tree. <laughs> uh, Owen, I'm really sorry because I should have said at the start of the podcast, we did have a little bit of a playlist lined up. You did lots of work um, when I invited you <laughs> on the podcast. Um, because you you had actually listened to a couple of old episodes, I believe. Yeah, yeah, quite a few. I'm not going to say you're a fan of the podcast. I don't want to put words in your mouth. I mean, I can say I'm a fan. Thank you. But the way we used to do things here was that... I used to sort of get the guests to put a little of "This Is Your Life" playlist of songs that you know inspired them or things that they you know listen to while they're say making cheese um, or wrestling or skateboarding or whatever. So, so we thought maybe we put a, a bit of a list for Owen Dara together, and I'm sitting and we haven't played any apart from Mazi Star, so. Maybe we could dig into your playlist a bit and get get to know the, the musical tastes of Owen. So the best place to start, obviously, is with the really embarrassing songs you listened to uh, when you were a, a preteen and a teen. <laughs> <laughs> and the options you've given me are... <laughs> well, they're, 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 uh, yeah, that's a curated is, is selection from that... Is this because of this Facebook trend at the minute?
1: It is, yeah, there was that. There was that. Or I mean, I think there still is that online fad at the minute of everyone posting their top 10 albums from their childhood or their, no, not even their childhood, specifically their teenage years. And I found myself going through like friends and colleagues and this, and the other online people, people posting it and just find that it was all far too cool. (laughs) Like, you know, real, real, real intelligent
0: choices, real, you know, uh, just really cool. Yeah, I was listening to Scott Walker yeah. and, uh, and
1: and all that <laughs> at the age no. of thirteen. And and I kind of, I mean, I I just I did it really flippantly one night where I kind of just had a think for about half an hour and put it together and put it up online. So can and you can you bong through your list here for us? <laughs> yeah, and this uh, I mean this is one hundred percent. And to be honest, after going through it, I've been listening back to loads <laughs> of these, and I stand by every one of them, every single one of them, as a fully functioning adult. Chronologically, I think I put them first one, which, you know, is still a masterpiece, uh, was the album Spice World.
0: Right, and I think we have a track from that.
1: Song I put on is from is from is from Spice, which is the album previous to that, which is
0: you know in some ways just as seminal. Um, I've, I've really <laughs> made a, a DJing faux pas by playing a Spice Girl song from the wrong album. I'm yeah. sorry, listeners. You thought you could hang on me for every word. In the same way music. that you'd be upset if you got the Scott Walker album wrong, you need to be just as upset. Oh, and what is it that attracts you to the production of '90s pop? Because this is you listen back to Destiny's Child. Which is and also on my the, list. Oh, oh, what's the Destiny Child album? The um, Survivor album. Obviously. Which is just brilliant. There was such a freedom in the 90s, wasn't there? I think that's what gets me about the production. It's just like, f- bung everything onto that track. Get the, the G-funk synth <laughs> on it.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: Get like the little, you know, the pantomime jingly thing. <laughs> and, and great chord changes as well. That, Destiny's Child Say My Name is probably my favourite pop production on a track ever. Christina Aguilera, is she on the list. She is the stripped album. I think I jumped in on your thread here and okay. commented that the album with "Come On Over, Baby" should should peak, it. Christina. That was peak Christina, yeah. And John, I, I I couldn't disagree more. Really? Yep.
1: Christina Aguilera's stripped album is a work of art, start to finish. <laughs> There's about. If I remember rightly, there's about forty songs on it. <laughs> uh, it's 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 a real major, it's major the, it's body of work.
0: It's <clears> melancholy <throat> <throat> and it's sadness, is it? And it's it's spectacular. So the track that you had was "Can't Hold Us Down." I think you, yeah, gave me. But I mean, most people would pick "Beautiful." Is that not on that one?
1: It, "Beautiful" is on that one, but "Beautiful" is nowhere near as good as this one, Melo Kim. Nowhere near.
0: So, what am I not supposed to have an opinion? Should I keep quiet just because I'm a woman? Call me upstairs. because I speak, what's on my mind? Guess it's easier for you to swallow if I act and smile.
1: When a female fires
0: back, suddenly I don't know how to
1: act. So that's what any that little boy would do, making up a few.
0: Right, run through the rest of your list there to, to, so we can um, remember what 14 uh, ones old oh, I mean, like, the other
1: real early days one was Aqua's Aquarium, <laughs> um, which, you know, again, really uh, seminal work. Uh, Missy Elliott's album, This Is Not A Test. Great. With Pass That Dutch and All on it is just brilliant. And then Rufus Wainwright's Want One uh, was... A hugely emotional album for me in a cliche way as a, a, a gay teen, I suppose. And then Golf Raps, Black Cherry, I listened to Death. And, I, and like actually, then since thinking about it, I have listened to it a couple of times over the past week. And it's still brilliant, stands the test of time,
0: no bother. And then um, Joanna Newsom's The Milk Eyed Mender. See, now that is your um, I'm cool. As a teenager album, it I think, de- I mean, a bit it, of Joanna Newsom in there. Do you
1: know what? It, I mean, it definitely is now. I can confidently say that Joanna Newsom's dead cool. Um, but <laughs> actually, I remember playing that. Um, uh, I remember playing that once in, um, it was just as I went to uni. So I was 18 and I went, moved into halls and I was playing it and had my, like, my flatmates I clearly had been listening next door and at one point all came in like on mass going what is that it's it's awful it's truly awful and and I was and I was mortified I was really Aww. you know because I, I, like freshers week or something trying to make new friends and definitely be as cool as possible and uh, so I didn't listen to it for ages and then I mean and then came back to and I've followed Joanna's work ever since she's She's incredible.
0: If there's a message in there, it's never be embarrassed about the music that you're listening to.
1: No, I mean we've now just been like rolling through the Spice Girls, Destiny's Child, and um, Lil Kim. I'm clearly
0: loud and proud about my music now. <laughs> <laughs> there is also that uh, sense of you know people also then trying to be you know cool by their own coolness and their catchiness. But... Yeah, that's true. Well, maybe I mean maybe that's what this is as well. I mean that's precisely what this whole album of my teens. Trend is yeah. I haven't done one yet. What I don't think what, I will do one. What would be
1: on yours? Like off I mean, the top if of your I head do one, I'll
0: make a podcast about it. Um, do a I full don't know, run what through would be on off the top of my head. It depends what age. I went through quite a journey as a teenager, starting off with like didn't we all limp biscuit yeah. <laughs> and segueing into ash and rage against the machine well i mean like you
1: were actually even cooler than me at that stage because that's what i kind of shout out to my 15 year old self in town um i would have been wearing like an offspring or nirvana t-shirt but would have been listening to destiny's child on my (laughs) earphones
0: (laughs) (laughs) like that was that that was my that was my reality back then did you sing along in private because you were you were singing, so you were you were singing in the school musicals and things like that. Were you singing this pop music as well, like belting it out in the shower and stuff? All the time, still yeah. do, yeah. You still do, sure. And I've seen you out actually, and you're like singing <laughs> on the dance floor. So is that is that really your musical practice right now? <laughs>
1: That's my musical practice right now. Um, yeah, it's uh, yeah, it's it's definitely not a priority. No, but it's a natural thing. Oh yeah, I, I still. I mean, I'm suspicious of people who don't sing. But singing's so good
0: for you. You know, it's so good for your body and soul and your breathing and everything. You know, if you're not belting it out a wee bit on your own, yeah. What are you doing? Start trying. What are you doing? Yeah, that's what I mean. I think it's suspicious. I think I go through phases where I don't really sing that much to myself, and then I go through phases where I'm flat out giving it stacks all the time, riffing, improvising, bass lines and stuff beatboxing in the car and all <laughs> and I'm like where did that come from I'm wondering if it's like you know if that's a way to sort of let out your 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 steam in that yeah way. sure some and people then... get road rage and some people sing welcome songs really loud better the singing than the road rage it's like we all need our way to find our ways of channeling that aggression but when I've never seen you get aggressive is that in I you? I don't get aggressive that much It's it sure
1: is in me but not um, only when it's absolutely necessary not I've never I don't get phys, uh, I don't get physically no. aggressive no at all really but
0: no me neither you also I I mean would you shout at somebody if they
1: needed to shout at if it they needed to shout at them yeah <laughs> shout at too, shout at to, for sure
0: yeah does, like does... I'm a big boy I can look after myself if I need to <laughs> Does that happen in, in work a lot? I'm I'm wondering in the curatorial practice, aesthetic decisions about like it's a creative. <laughs> turn into shout matches. It's a creative. It's a creative process, but I mean, does that get a bit emotional sometimes if you know there's if there's disagreements in a collective or a collaboration?
1: Not not really in my experience. I actually think it's I think it's really useful to have lots of arguments about art all the time that they're the most productive conversations when someone isn't looking at something in the way that you are and asking you or forcing you to reconsider your opinion or the way that you're approaching it. Um, But, I mean, at least professionally, I've been lucky enough to be surrounded with really intelligent, really critical, and then importantly, really supportive um, peers and colleagues where a conversation is never going to get too emotional and an argument about art or an argument about curatorial practice or anything like that is never going to turn into anything personal it's always a
0: really juicy productive critical conversation Do you think you'll miss the team at the MAC? Massively hugely
1: yeah I am um, I mean in a strange way moving on from the MAC the, 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 the job here working here was my first uh, paid professional curatorial role. So in some ways that this is all I've known, um, alongside an independent practice, alongside independent projects, alongside constant work with um, four great friends at household. But this has been my job and my professional profile for five years. So to move on, to think about moving on, is um, is kind of terrifying in that way. And, and I'll miss... Everything about this place.
0: Go into a new city, especially because you've been sort of rooted in Belfast for the last five years. Do you have any sort of feelings about, or trepidations, or, or are you really looking forward to getting stuck in and finding out what Dundee's all about and how you can engage there? I uh, I can't wait to get stuck in.
1: I'm really excited about it. I'm. Uh, I mean, it's it's just Dundee in 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 the sense of it's not it's not a million miles away mm-hmm. um i'm i'm an hour and a half train to glasgow or edinburgh and from there a half hour flight home i'll be back in belfast loads i have you know still have independent projects coming up here and have so many uh you know friends and family and, and loved ones that will still be in the city um that i'll be back you know and anyway like i I'll turn up for the opening of an envelope. I'm not going to miss any uh,
0: <laughs> any good parties or any good projects here. But this time you won't be serving the wine. But I will not be
1: serving <laughs> the wine. Yeah, I'll be I'll be I'll be drinking more of it. <laughs> uh, but I I am um, no. I'm really excited. I'm really excited about Dundee. Actually, in some ways, because it's not. I don't. I don't think it's that different a city. Yeah. To Belfast, it has the same kind of vibe. In some ways, I think culturally, it has the same real. Uh, kind of exciting edge to it that Belfast has, because precisely because it's not Edinburgh, or it's not Glasgow, it's that little weird city further north that doesn't quite get the attention that, say, Edinburgh does. In the same way that, you know, I think we could definitely all say that the, the same could be said of Belfast and Dublin. Um, but to my mind, Belfast is is a far more exciting place to work because of how, uh, because of the because there's still a real capacity to test things out and try things out and like establish new ways of working up here. Dundee is a city on the up and on the rise, I think is going to be a really, really exciting place to be over the next few years. And I also know DCA um, having visited the galleries whenever I was a student in Edinburgh and more recently having visited the space when my little sister um, was studying there for a couple of years. Right. Um, It's a brilliant institution. It's not actually, not unlike the Mac in some ways um, in that it has this glorious kind of visual art program in, in two really beautiful gallery spaces that sits alongside other art forms um, but where we have the theatre spaces in the Mac DCA has two um, cinema spaces okay. and an independent film program and it also has this glorious print studio um, and kind of like many publishing house and design bookshop and cafe and that's one of the most exciting things about going over there as well is that I'm going to another organisation where I'm going to be exposed to so much more than just um, a gallery programme or so much more than
0: just working with visual art and visual artists. Well, I'm really excited. I'm sure our listeners are excited to visit Dundee now that we found out it's such an amazing place. Owen, I'm going to have to hit stop really soon because we're coming up on the hour, and you've got things to do. You've got to, got, got to get ready. You've got too many projects on at the minute, spinning too many plates. It's been an absolute pleasure having you today, uh, finally getting you on the podcast. And maybe we'll do this maybe in another year's time, whenever you're actually being in Dundee, settled in, see what the crack is there. Definitely, I'd love to. Thanks for having me on, Tom. Do you have a song you'd like to finish with?
1: Uh, Actually, yeah, just um, this is not a song that has any huge meaning or background for me. This is really just an earworm that I heard on the radio a couple of weeks ago and have been playing non-stop since um and it's a it's an aretha franklin song Mm -hmm. uh I'm, i'm like i'm i'm a huge aretha franklin fan and this came on the radio and i had never heard it before but instantly recognized her voice and shazammed it and have have had it on a loop um and it's it's called don't play that song um so uh john play that song
0: Oh, you want me to play it Yeah, not? sure. W- listeners, if you just ignore the point where Owen said that there's no main significance and just imagine that the significance is there for you to find. He's opening the door and letting you walk right in here, okay? <laughs> <laughs> oh, Dara, from the Mac Belfast, but heading over to DCA in Dundee real soon. Owen, we wish you all the best of luck. See you soon. Yeah, see you soon, John. Don't play that song for me it brings